Hey, this is Scott Sherrard from Little Feet. You're listening to Talking Blues. So, Scott, I wanted to ask you about your father because I think he's had a huge influence, and, and perhaps your mother as well, in you becoming a musician. Can you talk to a little bit about your, your dad, the musician that he was and uh, and the person that he is? Yeah, well, I was raised in a very um, artistic household uh, in Michigan. We moved around a lot, but I was, I was born in Ann Arbor and raised in the Dearborn area and the suburbs around Detroit and Dearborn until I was about eight or nine years old. Um, then we moved to a couple different places. We ended up in Pennsylvania We for a few years. Then we finally, I went to high school in Milwaukee at the High School of the Arts. So I named my last solo album Rust Belt uh, because the only commonality I could find in all those places was, well, I'm definitely a Michigan boy at heart. I've got all the, the contradictions and the trappings there are of being from Michigan uh, deep in my soul. But then living in Pennsylvania... Wisconsin, they're known as all known as being part of the Rust Belt or the uh, the you know I I suppose Rust Belt is kind of a it's 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 kind of a you know it's kind of a slight at the Midwest to some to me I embrace it um, the Rust Belt being you know the rusted out factories that used to be uh, the the uh, the prosperity of the middle class in America that's gone now and of course. That's something we're all grappling with from many different angles these days. And I'm a child of that, but I'm also the child of people who were very passionate about art as a way to escape, uh, as a way to find solace, uh, as a form of sort of religion in a way. And so that was Shakespeare in the Park. That was... Bobby Blue Bland, Jack McDuff, the Allman Brothers, Little Feet, um, you know, and and all of the above, going to concerts. My father was a professional musician on and off, but he, uh, that's a longer story. He did not succeed at that. He ended up in cable television, ultimately, which he got to through studying radio and communications with a guy named Russ Gibb, who's a legendary Michigan um uh, music promoter and uh, uh, by origin. And then he got into all kinds of different radio and communications. Russ had a place called the Grandy Ballroom where in the 60s, Hendrix and Zappa, it was like the Fillmore East of the Midwest. And Russ was one of my babysitters. In fact, the first B.B. King record I ever heard, Russ played for me and I think I was about five. Um and he used to put on all these blues and soul records when he would babysit me. He had never had children. It was a very odd babysitter to have. <laughs> he told a lot of stories about those bands. Um, and then, you know, my house was always the band house everywhere we lived. So it was always the house where musicians would come to jam and eat and do bad things and do good things. <laughs> um and by the time I got to Milwaukee, I was in the high school of the arts where my teachers were these incredible musicians. Um, and I was living two blocks from an independent film uh, theater called the Oriental. So I was seeing Godard and Fellini and Truffaut. I was walking to the blues club and sitting in and meeting Hubert Sumlin and jamming with him and Pine Top Perkins and Luther Allison and bunch of other cats you've never heard of who were just as good who were around at the time who've all passed away now so i was really raised by the scene as it were and um music became my own form of solace that was that was independent of my family very early on i became very independent very quickly and um you know really was determined to find my own way. I was an only child also, no siblings. And uh, I think that had a big, that has a big effect on somebody, especially when you have, you grow up in a very uh, intense environment like that. And things were always changing. I mean, we, 
I must have gone to a dozen schools between kindergarten and, and graduating, um, lived in a dozen different towns in different places. How do you, you think know? that affected you? The, the ability to adapt to new environment? Well, I mean, you know, without, without, you know, laying down on the couch and having to pay you for this interview, um, <laughs> you know, without going too far with it, uh, it's fucked up. Um, I have two little boys, you know, they're five and 10 now. And uh, they've lived in New York City their whole lives. Um, and I think that they're developing an identity and they have a kind of security that they carry in their personalities that's very foreign to me. Um, I found security in my personality when I got to Milwaukee High School of the Arts and, you know, because I was just telling my oldest son this morning, you know, like when you were the when you were the hot shit jazz musician at Milwaukee High School of the Arts, it was like being the quarterback of the football team in every other school. You know, it was a big deal. It opened a lot of doors for you with friends, with girls, you know, all the right doors would open. Um, so I, I think that school really saved my ass. Um, I think music gave me a direction, although I'm sort of like the quintessential Capricorn kind of control freak type A. I think no matter what I would have done, I would have gone at it like a motherfucker. I think that's just my personality. Um, I zeroed in on the music and the music, you know, the, the great thing about music is, you know, there's all these cliche terms like, you know, that are true. I mean, language of the soul, this is true. I mean, it, it really, it transcends um, so much of the bullshit uh, trappings in daily life. And it can also transcend the trappings of, it can even go beyond cultural identity when you think about American music in particular, think about that melting pot of different cultures and the incredibly positive and negative effects within this country, but then the language, you know, and when you listen to every other form of music outside of the United States now, that's new, it sounds like American music. I mean, even all that, I mean, the most extreme example I can think of in terms of reach is like the, uh, like BTS, and this Korean pop music. I mean, it's all based on American R&B and rock and roll, mm -hmm. every lick of it. I mean, we changed the world with our music. It's the best thing we ever did, besides kill the Nazis. I, I wonder at what point, I know that you started early. I mean, it blows me away that at the age of 11, 12, you were recording music, playing all the different instruments to replicate a bad company song or whatever. Um, music obviously came easy to you, but at what point did you think music is something that you wanted to pursue? It brings back a lot of memories. I, I have very fond memories of being in that front room. That was in Newtown, Pennsylvania. I had a really cheap drum kit and a couple guitars and a four-track recorder. And yeah, the, the Bad Company record was one of them. Um, uh, Little Feet Waiting for Columbus, the first two Allman Brothers records, which is, of course, it's kind of amazing when I think back on all that. Um, I had pictures of of Dwayne Allman and Lil George, Chuck Berry, Jimi Hendrix on my wall. They were my heroes. Um, and I wanted to experience and create music in totality from the beginning. Um, I had an interest in how it was all put together and recording is still my favorite medium for creativity. If, if I could, if you said you get to do, you know, one or two things with the rest of your career, I would say make records and teach at a university. Those are probably the things I'm most passionate about are, are making records and being an educator. Um, you know, touring is, is way down at the bottom of my list of interests. <laughs> I have no interest in it. Um, but I love being on stage for two hours and I love the camaraderie and everything, but I hate being away from my family. And I also feel like, you know, the recording process is really what got me into this. And it was the four track and it was recreating those songs piece by piece. Uh, I don't know why that is, 
but I can tell you my my first love was really the drums. Really? But yeah, but the thing was is that it was such a pain in the ass to carry them around and I, I'm gonna be honest with you, you know, when I when I wanted to meet girls, I'd see these you know, it's like the classic thing. I was going to a private school at the time. And you'd see the kids on the quad with an acoustic guitar and they'd have all the girls in a semicircle around them. I said, what am I going to set up my drums and do this? You know, and there were all these guitars in the house. There were like four, maybe three or four guitars at the time in the house, one electric and some acoustics, a bunch of really nice acoustics my dad had. And um, he would sit around and play Bob Dylan and bluegrass music and old blues songs and old rock and roll songs, Big Bill Brunzi, Chuck Berry, Jimmy Reed. And I would just pick up a guitar eventually and just start plucking along. Um, and that was kind of why I ended up playing the guitar. It was just what was available and it was what was impressing <laughs> impressing the, uh, the girls whose attention I wanted to get at the time. But I presume it came somewhat naturally to you? I mean, that's always a hard thing for me to reckon with. I mean, I was accused in my teens of being a child prodigy on the blues circuit, which in the 90s, in the early 90s, was something that just made me, it was like, gag me with a spoon, give me a break. And there were all these great players out there doing it. I mean, you had Johnny Lang out there. You had, uh, I mean, Derek Trucks was out there, who, who became this, obviously, this incredible incredible musician um but you know those cats were out there doing that in the early 90s and i i don't know man i it was weird it was like i could do it but there was always in every town there was a guy there was a kid like a teenager in every town in america in the early 90s who dressed up like stevie ray vaughn with the hat and had the stratocaster and would make the faces and do all the stuff and i just I just ran away. As soon as that came on the scene, I was already playing a lot of blues gigs. I just started running in the other direction. You know, I wanted to be, I wanted to be a combination of things. I didn't want to just be defined by being some kind of guitar dude. You know, I, I loved from very early, Lil George, Tom Waits, Warren Zevon, um, you know, uh, uh, Prince, Stevie Wonder, you know, Jimi Hendrix is my favorite musician of all time. Uh, Miles Davis. Uh, that was who I wanted to be. I, I had no interest in being Stevie Ray. And I saw Stevie Ray. I saw Stevie Ray when I was 11. And it was the probably the show that changed my life in terms of chasing the guitar and trying to master it. Um, and I, I still remember the energy coming off the stage. And he was a profoundly deep, incredibly important musician not just a guitar player um, in the history of music and in my own life personally. But what happened in his wake was sort of similar to what happened with Hendrix, where it just spawned this, this, this league of just shitty, terrible imitators and people who thought if they bought the gear, they would sound like them. And people who thought if they bought the hat, it would get over. And, and it really, I think in some ways it was probably one of the things that's held me back in my career um, has been, as a creative person, has been my allegiance to the sound in my head over everything else. Um, it's made my music very, very hard to pin down. Um, and there was a time when that would, would have been considered an asset by certain A&R people, but I didn't live during any of those times. <laughs> okay, but, but the fact that you were playing, and if I'm correct me if I'm wrong, but you, you did play with people like Hubert. Um, did, did you not jam on a weekly basis with Willie's Big Eye Smith? Not on a weekly basis. He had a jam session, and um, he had a bass player at the jam session at Coco Taylor's named Ron Hill. And Ron was a phenomenal bass player, singer. I've lost track of him. I don't even know if he's still with us, unfortunately. Um, I lost him many cell phone numbers ago. He's really kind of a rogue individual. But Ron used to play bass with Magic Sam and Little Milton in the 60s and 70s. And Ron was one of my, one of my teachers. And I was in Ron's band. It was a trio. 
And Ron had a bunch of house gigs in Chicago. He would drive from Milwaukee down to Chicago. And one of them was Coco Taylor's with Willie Big Eye Smith. And I did play in the house band a couple times. I jammed with him a couple times. Um, I used to sometimes just ride down with Ron and just listen. But I was 16, 17, 18 when I started making those trips. Another place I used to go was, um, was uh, oh, it's the one that's not there anymore. Oh, they're all not there anymore, except for um, Kingston Mines is still there, I think. Um, yep. Checkerboard Lounge was the other place we would go with. Willie Higgins would take me down there and I'd play with John Primer or uh, people like that. Uh, Pine Top and Hubert would come to the up and under a few times a year, drink for free, sit in at the jam. Um, I got to hang out with them there and jam with them and talk to them a lot. And got some finger picking lessons from Hubert in the, back in the, uh, back in the uh, dressing room a couple times. I mean, the up and under, it's, I think it's still there. I, I, I don't think they have blues anymore, but the up and under, under the leadership and ownership of this guy, Mike Costell was a really important salon of blues music in the Midwest at the time I lived in Milwaukee. And this was the early late eighties, early nineties. That was the place you wanted to be. And that's where Luther Allison would play for multiple nights and uh, little Charlie and the Nightcats and uh, all the Chicago dudes primer would come through. Um, and, and those legendary cats, like I said, our, our local guys were Stokes, who was really my, mentor and teacher I used to play with Stokes was like the equal to Little Milton or B.B. King or any of those guys singer guitar player just absolutely everybody's favorite on the scene the man had the most incredible voice and I started out playing uh sometimes I'd play drums in his band sometimes I'd play bass in his band eventually I graduated to being a guitar player eventually he would let me sing and um you know, by the time I was 19, we were doing our own co-build shows at the Up and Under. But Mike Costell, the owner of the Up and Under, uh, signed me on as a bar back when I was 16, which you can do in the city of Milwaukee. And that means um, I was able from the age of 16 to go in the club without my parents, because if the place was raided, they could say I was the guy washing the dishes in the back. And there'd be no problem having a 16 year old in the place. So I had the run of that place. Well, what did that expose you to the blues and not only the blues, but to the blues greats at the age of 16, 17, 18 do for you? Well, I'm just glad that I was aware who they were. And I was aware of how important what they had done was for music um so i definitely had that going into it i think i was also um very you know and and i think this is maybe the type a in me that's less less the artist and more the producer organizer that i am but i was always sort of cognizant of like where does this end up you know because i would see those guys and they would be in there and, you know, they made all their money in Europe and in the States. I mean, they, they're playing little bars that were half full all the time. It was like no one appreciated what they did. And I think I knew uh, for sure that this wasn't something just unique to their experience. This was part of the sort of, you know, the disrespect we have for our own uh inventions in this country culturally you know everyone in this country moves on to the next thing um i live in new york city so that's the capital of next thing you know um new york and la you know it's like tear it down keep it moving you know history doesn't matter um and i was definitely not of that mindset i felt like the history that those guys embodied was as important as you know Abraham Lincoln or Jackson Pollock, you know, I kind of saw it all the same. So what does it do to you as a young musician seeing these greats barely getting by or in, in more in a more personal side? You saw your dad who wanted to be a musician, give up music. I don't know if he gave it up, but who was a professional musician, 
not become a professional musician. Did that ever concern you as your pursuits for music? Yeah, I probably, you know, in, in some respects, you could say I maybe should have been more concerned about that, considering what's happened to the profession. <laughs> you know, at the time, like in that period, in the early 90s, I mean, there was still this sort of the last wisp. It was that last wisp of artists on labels. And the ones who really affected my life, who put records out in the early 90s were Chris Whitley, uh, Jeff Buckley, um, Paul Weller was doing some amazing solo records at that time. And there were a host of other artists that I'm, I'm missing, but definitely, you know, all these, like the Almond Brothers and Little Feet were still putting out great records, Bonnie Raitt, they were all putting out great records and they were new records and they were signed to multiple album deals and they were new sounds and they were trying new things and they were doing international tours to support them. That whole framework was still there. And then the nineties between the record, the corporate record companies completely missing the boat on monetizing music streaming to help everybody and instead selling the farm and fucking the artists, which is the opposite of course, to what film and television had to do because they actually have unions um they fucked that up uh they did the you know the corporate record labels did the whole thing where there was a lot of consolidation you know uh warner brothers and sony started buying up all these small labels they start firing people who sign artists they they want more in syncs they want more britney spears 99 2000 they just fucked the fans at every turn they fucked them on content. They fucked them on access to streaming as it became an emerging technology. They fucked them at every turn. And when you fuck over your customers over and over again, eventually your customers are going to say, you know what? I'm not even going to pay for this. What's the point? I can go directly to the artist. And of course, we've learned the hard way that if that's going to be the case, unfortunately, artists are very bad at monetizing things for themselves. And that's just a fact. And yeah, some of these, some of these artists are good at doing the influencer game and doing the YouTube clickbait, TikTok clickbait game, and they can still be artists. I mean, some artists who come to mind are like Jacob Collier or um, uh, the band Knower. You know, they make amazing music. They're incredible musicians. And uh, another band is Wolfpack. And what they do is they make these viral, originally it was viral videos on YouTube. Now I'm sure it's moved on to TikTok or maybe even something else. I can't keep up with all this shit. Um, and they kind of figured out how to do this art medium, visual musical art medium with it. And I applaud that. I think it's amazing. Um, unfortunately, uh, for me, I became very early on obsessed with the auditory experience of music. So when I make a record, I'm trying to make uh, Dark Side of the Moon or Electric Waiting Land. I, I want you to close your eyes and go into a world. I'm not, I'm not a visual artist. I just don't have that gift. Um, and I'm really happy for these artists who are. I mean, I suppose Prince, you know, like with many things, he was way ahead of his time uh, doing the Purple Rain film. You know, if, 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 if there's a Prince now, you know, maybe it is Jacob Collier or someone like that who can... Um, who can master all the mediums at once. As a musician, how do, how do you deal with that, with, with the industry changing? You, you, uh, you bow out. You do, what, you do what Leonard Bernstein did in the 50s and 60s, and you do what Wynton Marsalis did in the 80s and 90s. You, you codify the repertoire. You, um, you, make, yourself a, uh, you make yourself a plan to teach the repertoire, you make yourself a plan to perform the repertoire. And that gets us right up to speed. Cause now, I mean, honestly, if you want to sell a few hundred tickets to a thousand tickets, depending on who you can get, best thing you can do is play the music of the Grateful Dead. I mean, John Mayer was selling out Madison Square Garden. And he ended up joining the Grateful Dead. I'm sure he didn't do that 
just because it was fun to play the music. I mean, I'm sure there was a financial calculation there as well. Um, the repertoire is more generally is more profitable than the creativity or the art. And that happened to classical music uh, at the dawn of swing and the dawn of the record era. It happened to jazz music in the 80s when you had, you know, you had bands like Weather Report selling out stadiums. And then by the 80s, it just started to nosedive. And by the 90s, it became a cultural institution. And the same thing is happening right now as we speak. Uh, this week, I'm doing a rock camp for Relics with Phil Lesh, John Schofield, and Robert Randolph. And we're teaching for four days with those musicians. Now, I'm going to tell you something. I, I can't imagine in the 90s rock musicians doing something like that. There's a reason they're doing it. And it's cultural, but it's also business. Um, and that's the same thing for jazz and the same thing for classical. So the model already exists. Um, how far do we go with it? Um, well, jazz at Lincoln Center, I mean, really, jazz at Lincoln Center has the only functional touring jazz big band in the world. And why? It's because they're all on salary and they teach all year. And then they tour, I think, mostly just in the summers and mostly overseas. They spend the rest of the year educating musicians to do the same thing. Um, that's where we're going. And I, I'm, I'm hoping to, to deepen my, my reach in, uh, in the field of education because I'm extremely passionate about it. Um, and I do think there's a lot of value in it. And I also, there are a lot of new artists coming out right now who I think are fucking great. You know, there's this guy, Sam Fender, I just got turned on to a few weeks ago. He's just absolutely blown my mind. Uh, Maggie Rogers, who went to school here at NYU at the Clive Davis Institute. And she's got an incredible couple of records out. And she's a product of the new, you know, the Clive Davis Institute is one of the best examples of this new, you know, Questlove is a teacher there and Bob Power and, and, and people who are, you know, um, if it was the seventies, would Questlove be teaching at the Clive Davis Institute? Probably not. He probably wouldn't be playing on late night TV either. He'd probably be playing, you know, drums with, you know, if he was still alive, Jimi Hendrix or Stevie Wonder or something like that, you know, he'd be, he'd be producing records for Atlantic. He'd be a staff producer at Atlantic, you know, producing artist after artist, you know, he wouldn't be teaching. The reason someone as talented and brilliant and well-known as Questlove is teaching is because the art forms are now not bearing the weight of the market. The market is not interested in the art forms anymore, like it was. Well, how do you deal with that? I mean, when, when, when you, you educate, create... you do the same thing Yo-Yo Ma does, you know, is, is what he do, you know, what Yo-Yo Ma does, it's no different than what I do for a living. I mean, the only difference you could you could argue if you wanted to bridge this a little bit farther is that arguably, you know, with the cello, the best thing you can do are the Bach cello suites, in my opinion. There's a lot of great stuff. The Brahms stuff is great. I mean, there's so, and Yo-Yo Ma has done so much to expand the reach of the cello, obviously. But let's just get back to what would really, I think, would sell the most tickets for him is if he did the cello suites again. And it's like, he didn't write it. He's hundreds and hundreds of years from even interacting with Bach. I mean, the one advantage I have and what I do is I have some interaction with my heroes. You know, my decade with Greg Allman, um, my time now with Little Feet, uh, the few times I got to record and perform with Levon Helm. Um, there's a, a long list for me, Buddy Miles, when I was a kid um, of these musicians who shaped me. And it's kind of like, Sometimes I say, you know, it's like I get to go into the sunflower field with Van Gogh and set up the easel and I see exactly how he mixes the paints and he even lets me paint one every once in a while in the bottom corner. That's kind of been my station. And honestly, I see people like Leonard Bernstein and Wynton Marsalis and I feel like they had the same station. When you look at with Bernstein, you know, having interactions with uh, with the great classical composers of the era who were the last, really the last gasp. And then with Winton having the last gasp as well, you know, getting to 
get, you know, Winton actually getting to know and be mentored by someone like Clark Terry or, or, or uh, Billy Taylor, all these other great player educators, and Cedar Walton, you know, and all that. So I think that's basically my, my station as a musician. Um, I'm obviously not comparing my reach to those people um, or my abilities for that matter. I mean, I think they're both brilliant educators. I aspire I aspire to what they accomplished. That doesn't mean I'm going to get to it, but I think aspiring to that is not only more realistic, but I think it is essential to the survival of the American music art forms. Because honestly, I see a lot of people now who play rock star on TV who are my age and it's just not going to happen. They're just not going to make, they're not going to make acts as bold as love. They're not going to make Sergeant Pepper. It's just not going to happen, you know, um, for my, my age group, you know, the gen, the gen Xers. What is, you, you mentioned working with little feet You what mentioned working with, with, um, Greg Allman. What is it about you that, that has given you those opportunities? I mean, I find it interesting that in both cases, if I'm not mistaken, you had an audition. I'm not even sure if little feet was an audition you were asked to fill in and you got the gig, I think. Um, with Greg Allman, I think somebody tried to get you an audition. You played with the Allman Brothers Band, and you connected with Greg. In both cases, I mean, it seems like a very high-pressure audition gig, and you, and obviously you nailed it. But what is it about you that um, got you those positions, do you think? Wow, it's a good question. Uh, luck? Uh so there's a there's a timing and luck thing, knowing the right people, uh, doing the right fifty dollar gigs. I tell young musicians this a lot because, you know, sometimes musicians, especially ones who go to music schools, they take all these different music business classes and stuff. A lot of it's irrelevant now. I, I wonder how it's been updated recently, actually. But, you know, they get this idea. Well, a gig is supposed to play this and I'll do it for this. And it's like, well, have you considered who you're working for? Because, you know, um, what I used to do a lot is I, I would. And I couldn't afford to do it, but I would turn down high paying gigs to do local gigs in New York City with musicians that I knew were out touring with artists I wanted to play with. And it was Jay Collins. I was playing in his band, you know, playing locally, mostly at the 55 bar and sometimes uh, leave on Helms Place or the Bearsville Theater and these little places around. And we were doing gigs together for years. And Jay the whole time was playing sax in Greg's band and was the band leader at the time. And uh, he brought me to that Almond Brothers show to sit in. And what, I mean, I was nervous as shit. I mean, I was pretty green. I was in some ways, you know, I was 30 years, years old. And I was actually, I was actually thinking of, of, of attending NYU at the time to become a music educator. I, I was ready to leave the business. I'd been through, down, I've been down a million blind alleys at that point. And then I met Greg and there was something that clicked with us. And a lot of it was the love of the blues and the understanding of it at a visceral level as sort of the rue in the gumbo um, when you're making rock and roll and having that in common was an immediate bonding point for us. And then we, we felt it on stage when we played together and it, it became a really rich collaboration. And then ultimately um, somewhere in there, we forged a bond. I, I don't know if I would call it a friendship. It was more like a brotherhood. Um, I ended up seeing him like a much older brother, not like a father figure, but like a, like a brother. He was, he was a little, he was a little too flawed to be a father figure. Um, but he was the most astonishingly uh, magnetic person I've ever known. And um, the greatest musician I, I have ever played with, without a doubt. There'll, there'll never be anything that touches that. I mean, it was like playing with Sinatra, you know, it just, it had that, it had that gravitas. And there's something about playing with a singer like that, where you play with a singer where, you know, you're going to get 10 of these every generation, here's one. And then you live with them for a decade um, and make music with them and write songs with them. Um, and I suppose when I sat in with Greg, that bond we had right away is what kept me from, you know, puking and running the other direction. 
we held on we held on to that you know it was it was immediate it was like it was like a it was like a you know it was some kind of kismet him and i i don't know we were just meant to meet at that time and the same thing with little feet you know i you know larry and Teresa were out there doing all these gigs with him paul was at home sick and then all of a sudden larry and Teresa couldn't do two gigs and through a whole series of events, Bill Payne ends up calling me. We have a lovely conversation on the phone, serious also. Um, I had a few weeks. I learned the shit out of the material, uh, like serious as a heart attack. I got to the gig, the first of two gigs I was subbing for Larry and Teresa, who were subbing for Paul, you got to understand. I was like the third stringer. Wait, can I ask you, what, when you rehearse for the, do you have any rehearsals with the band for this gig? No. No. So you, 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 they send you tapes or something. Well, check, check out, check out what happened. So yeah, I mean, I had all the music and, and there were no charts. So I printed lyrics and made notes and I'm waiting at the sound check at the venue. And my buddy, Jay Collins from the Greg Allman band was in the horn section with little feet at the time. And he calls me from the little feet bus that's pulling up. And he says, Scott, I, I wanted to tell you before you see the guys, we all just found out that Paul Barrera just passed away. This is right before I meet them for the first time. Mm-hmm. Now I had met Bill, but I hadn't met anyone else. So they come in, I'm, you know, everyone's choked up. I'm, I'm hugging people. I've, you know, I'm hugging Fred Tackett, meeting him for the first time and Sam and Kenny, and they're all busted up and it's like, okay, let's rehearse. So we played for 45 minutes. It sounded good. They were like, yeah, that'll work. I think everybody was just in a terrible state of shock. And then the gig, uh, you know, the place was packed. We went out on stage. Thank God it was in Long Island. So it was a sort of a adopted hometown show for me. And we get out on stage and Bill Payne's tells the audience, we lost Paul Barrera today. It was the first time it had been made public. And then I had to play a two-hour gig with him. So how do you get through something like that? How do you work your way through a gig like that? Well, I'll tell you something, man. That gig, that Little Feet show, I I got some time myself for about five minutes before we went up there. And I just, I got to be honest with you. I just, I'm not religious. I don't pray. But I just started talking out loud spontaneously to uh, to Greg. I said, I said, man, I got to go up there and sing these old George songs. You know, Greg, Greg loved Little Feet. We used to listen to him all the time. They were one of his favorite bands. And I, I think, honestly, I think when Lowell died, they should have just hired Greg. I think that would have been the ultimate rock band of, of wow. the, uh, of the eighties. You know, they would have ruled it because he didn't have a home in the Allman brothers anymore by 1979. You know, he just felt like shit about the whole thing. And that, never really turned around. Uh, that's why he loved his solo band so much. But I think I carry some, you know, I think about my grandparents. Uh, that's my, my mom's parents. I, my grandfather was a big uh, force in my life. He was a real male role model for me. And he passed away from a heart attack when I was about 10, suddenly. I think about people like that. I think about Levon. Um also to an extent about what I saw him go through with battling cancer and doing shows. And um, I think about that generation. I think about these previous generations and I was thinking about Paul and his family and what they were going through and how important this music was to Paul and what an important part of little feet, what an essential part of little feet Paul Barrera is. If you think about the catalog, and I just I marshaled as much of that as I could. And I went on stage and, you know, ever since, ever since Greg passed away, I've thought about him. And I, on, every time I go on stage and, the, you know, when I, when I found out Greg was going to die, I, I was playing with another mentor that I was going to lose <laughs> within a year of this show was Bill Sims, the legendary New York blues artist. Um, it was uh, May of 2017. I was playing the Dylan Festival with, with Bill Sims. And I had my phone on the amplifier. We had just gotten done 
checking the instruments and we had a huge crowd of people in front of us on the lawn. This is out in New Jersey. And my phone was sitting on my amplifier and I was turning around to put it in airplane mode. And as I was getting up to turn around, I looked and there were people crying around the front of the stage. And I went and I looked at my phone and I had a text message from Mark Quinones. And he said, we, we've lost, we've lost Greg. He's gone to be with his brother and his mom. And I just put my phone on airplane mode. And I turned around and Bill Sims started playing the first song. And it was, uh, we were playing all Bob Dylan songs and it was girl from the North country. So we started like this ballad and man, I tell you, I have my, I'm glad I have my sunglasses on. I just started bawling and I was thinking about them and it was just this fucking beautiful day, beautiful day in May. The sun was up and you know, there were all these people on this hill and Bill was just, you know, was just such an important force as a singer and a guitar player. And, and, uh, you know, we would find out he had pancreatic cancer soon after that. And then I lost him about to, you know, our whole scene. We lost him a couple years later. Um, and, uh, I think ever since that day, every time I go on stage, I always think about Greg and it's, it's not always, um, it's, it's not always serious either. We had, we had a, we had a million laughs. Like whenever I dream about Greg, which isn't, it isn't often, but it happens like several times a year. It, it's always, we're always on a gig. We're backstage somewhere and we're just laughing about something every time. Um, you know, I th we had a lot of fun, but that's that energy, you know, music is energy and people like that, like Bill Sims, Greg Allman, you know, the, the kind of energy that they put out into the world, it, it lives way beyond them. And if, you stand next to that and you collaborate with that and try to make harmony with that as often as I was fortunate to, you end up taking a piece of it with you. How does that energy happen? Like, what uh, is it about Greg that he had that? Pain. Um, and then that, that throat, man, I don't know, the shape of his throat and his mouth. I, I don't know what... It's a combination of the luck of having the the instrument that he naturally possessed that resonated in his skull and then transferring all that pain, all of that pain and anguish and loss that he experienced into the music. And it's like, instead of somebody who goes to therapy twice a week uh, or perhaps goes to church every day, you know, um, you know, or belongs to a community to cope or, or is close to their family to cope. Someone like Greg, he became closer to the music and to musicians and the road and all the trappings of success. He used all of that as his, for better, or for worse, for better, for us, for the art, probably for worse for him inside. He used all that as his, his solace. You know, when you were around someone like that, I mean, the road was inseparable from his soul. You know, he was just, it was who he was. I'm not that person at all. Like I was saying to you before about the road. I mean, I performing live, I love it once I'm up there, but I, I never felt about it the way Greg did at all. You know, he was just, he would have stayed out there forever. If we go back to that moment when you when you joined Greg's band, and I know you've been playing a lot, you've done a lot of gigs and small and big gigs, but when you play with the Greg Allman band, it's a notch above what I presume you were used to, if not a few levels above. How was, was that a transition for you? Was that did you fit in very easily? Was it is there a big difference between? what you were doing to what you're now doing with Greg Allman? I mean, I basically, you know, yeah. I mean, I had kind of a, getting the gig with Greg kind of led to a lot of tumult in my own uh, thing because I was, I was kind of, when I was, 
you know, in 2008, when that happened, I was kind of getting used to the idea of like, just staying around home and being with my wife and having kids and like, just digging into it. Like I was just, I was, I'd kind of given up on the whole thing in a way. Wow. I had one foot out and he got me back in and it, it, it was an incredible experience, but, um, and I, I'm so thankful for how it all worked out. Um, you know, eventually, of course, as I was telling you earlier, I ended up having two boys with my wife and, and we've, we've weathered a lot of storms in this business together since that, that time when I took the gig, um, you know, it, it was a very, it was a lot of, it was a big sacrifice. It's a big sacrifice to be in a rock band and, and try to really do it. It's, uh, you lose a lot of moments with your family, you lose, you know, and it's, this was one of the things I'm one of those pandemic survivors who thrived in the pandemic. Uh, I was teaching on zoom, so I was able to support my family and, uh, I performed on zoom. Eventually I started playing with my own band throughout that, but I was able to start for the first time in my life, prioritizing time with my family and, um, and, uh, that's, that's really become my main passion in life at this point, um, is setting up my life around them. You know, how do you manage that when all of a sudden now you're a member of little feet? Like, it was well, like luckily, luckily these guys, you know, they don't want to, they don't want to play all the time. So, you know, for me, it works out really well, uh, with how we're working. I mean, I think next year we're going to play about 50 gigs. Okay. Um, you know, it's kind of ideal for me. Um, I'll never tour with anyone again after this. And you can, you can print that. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm done. Um, you know, I may, I'll still perform maybe around the Northeast and occasionally go hit a festival or something under my own name, or we'll see what happens with, uh, you know, little feet music, if there's opportunities to play little feet music in the future, but this whole, uh, this whole uh, thing of being away three or four weeks at a time. It's uh, those days of those days have passed for me. Once, once little feet is wrapped up in this incarnation, I think that'll be, that'll be it for me. I, I honestly, the, you know, it's like the last gigs, this, this is pretty much, you know, it's like this Tom Waits, Bob Dylan, Rolling Stones, you know, little feet is in that class of like, if you get an opportunity to do this, you're doing it all the way. Like it's not, it's not even a question of uh, blood or treasure, you know, it's like, it has to be done. You're being asked to be part of a, a legacy. You're being asked to be part of um, a vision quest, you know, um, you know, playing guitar with anyone else would be completely pointless to me uh, outside of that list I just gave you. But, um, so, but when Little Feet asked you to fill in on that gig, like there was no idea that you were maybe joining the band at a future date. This was just. Oh, a I, I knew I was. Oh, I knew I was going to join the band from from the first note of that show. Oh, really? So yeah. because that's what you wanted, or was it because you thought there was a possibility? No, I said this is what's going to happen. This, wow. When this gig is over, these guys are going to ask me to join the band. I knew it from the first note. And then we finished the gig, and they all asked me to join the band. It was the first thing that happened as soon as we walked off stage. I think even before we played the encore. Okay, so I know Waiting for Columbus and, I'm sorry, Little Feet and the Almond Brothers were huge as you were growing up. Hendrix, Little Feet, and, and Almond Brothers. The fact well, Hendrix, that you... Hendrix was unattainable. Right. Little Feet and the Almond Brothers, to a certain extent, represented something that was possibly attainable for a middle-class white kid. And which, which you attained. Yeah, there was an experiment there that I could picture myself being part of. You know, Hendrix was unattainable. Hendrix was, Hendrix was a Martian. He was from another planet. And he's the greatest musician. For me, he's the greatest musician ever. He's number one. If, I, if you said you get one, I'd pick him and we move on. If I get two, Miles Davis is next. But Little Feet and the Almond Brothers were the ultimate salon uh, 
in which you could fuse all the music I loved. So Hank Williams, Muddy Waters, uh, Jimi Hendrix, Miles Davis. You know, this was the music we we listened to on these buses. You know, we listened to Pharaoh Sanders and Jimmy Smith and the Spinners and Otis Redding and um, Freddie King. And it's it's all part of the formula. There's no rules. And those bands, they represented this limitless search. Uh, and that's rock and roll as it's best. It's like a it's it's a melting pot, you know, where you can't even really pin one style on any great rock band okay so the fact that you had the stream that they were attainable and and you obviously attained that like it's pretty amazing that you grew up idolizing these bands and now you're in both cases you were kind of part of those bands i don't know if you see it that way i do i mean i i see it as an incredible privilege um in terms of, and, and I also see it as a reward for my hard work. Uh, and then if I, if I was to think a little more critically about it and think about why did this happen to me? It's because uh, there were no uh, A&R people left. I mean, I would have been, you know, Ahmed Erdogan discovered me when I was 22 years old, you know, he tried to help me get a career and he told me everything that was going to happen. He's like, you know, these idiots in these corporate record labels, they're not going to do anything for you. We're not going to be able to get money. If this was the sixties, I'd give you a five album deal. You know, he tried to help me, but he said, look, you know, you're not of the time and it's going to get worse. This was, you know, this was, I'm talking about, uh, what was it? 99 or 2000 when I met with Ahmed the first time. I mean, it's gotten so much He's like, it's going to get so much worse. And he was right. And he's the guy, Ahmed Erdogan is the guy who told me, learn to write better, learn to sing better, learn to play better, learn to teach. He's the guy who told me to do all that. He's like, this whole thing is fucking going under for people like you. See, I, and, I don't, and I don't know when I hear your vocals and I think what a great singer, but I don't know if you get the credit for your singing. Well, thanks, man. I mean, I... It's not for a lack of, of, of trying with the voice. I've worked really hard on it. I have an amazing vocal coach now for 22 years named Greg Drew here in New York, who I credit with really helping me to get my technique to the point where I can get what's in my head. Because my very early, the first singers I tried to imitate were Will George and Greg Allman, Steve Winwood, um, And then eventually I got the guts to start messing around with Ray Charles and Sam Cooke. And then that got me to Stevie Wonder and, and eventually Donnie Hathaway, who to me, Donnie is kind of like the penultimate, you know, him and Marvin Gaye, I think are the two penultimate virtuoso singers in American music history. Sam Cooke, you got to put in there too, I guess, um, just in terms of what they can cover. Um, and I kind of worked my way up to them. And then in my early 20s, I put in a lot of time singing with those records and singing those songs on gigs. And then I put in a lot of time working with Greg Drew eventually on like getting my range up. And uh, I, I was really, I've worked hard on it. I take it as seriously as I do playing the guitar or writing songs. I mean, they're all equal to me. Those are my three focuses um, in terms of output is like songwriting, guitar playing, singing. They've got to all be on point. So now being part of Little Feet, I know that I've heard that maybe there's a possibility of a new recording. How do you approach that as a musician? Do you write just because you, you're inspired to write music or do you write for either solo project or Little Feet? Well, I mean, it's a good question. I, I, I think I have, you know, I have a lot of solo output. I mean, I've made six solo albums. You know, they're all streaming online. The most recent one, as I said before, is Rust Belt, which I put out last year. And I do think, you know, like, like every artist, it's like their most recent work. But I do think it is my best work in terms of uh, the songwriting. 
in particular. Um, in terms of the execution and the recording, you know, it has its moments, but I think for songwriting, it's easily my best record. Um, I've written a few songs already for Little Feet, and it definitely is a specific head. It's, it's very difficult to write for a legacy band like this. The only hope I have is when I think about Warren Haynes with the Almond Brothers on the Seven Turns record, or when I think about um, Craig Fuller with Little Feet on Let It Roll. I feel like those guys, Craig and Warren, really added very important songs to those legacy catalogs at the time. Um, I'm hoping we can get a few more in there. Uh, I don't know if I'm going to write them or Bill's going to write them or Fred or Tony or Kenny or Sam for that matter, but um, it's going to come from the six of us and we've got a lot of material to go through. We've all been writing a lot and I think, hell, why not? You know, um, it's gotta, we gotta have something. And I think, you know, I think the guys are playing their, their playing is at its, I think, I think they're all at the apex of their careers right now in terms of their musicality. Kenny, Bill, Fred, and Sam are playing shit they've never played before every night. If you come see us, they are fucking really digging deep. So for Tony and I, as you know, the young bucks in the band, um, at 53 and 45, <laughs> uh, you know, we're so inspired by these guys, man. I, I, I don't really see how, how it's possible for us to not do a record. You know, it's, it's a really, it's a band right now. It's a very inspired group of people who go on stage and see eye to eye and have open lines of communication and open lines of creativity. I mean, a record is inevitable in that situation. So, you know, as that kid who grew up listening to Waiting for Columbus, and now you, you just finished a, a short tour playing those songs. Well, I, I'll just, to be clear, our con contractual obligation to Waiting for Columbus is not over until December 21st. But yes, okay. we got three more. All right. Now. So, but, but as that kid who was growing <laughs> up. In case anyone hears this and they think we're done, we're okay. not. In December, we're doing this big tour. Doing All right. So, it, so, but you toured on that album. An album. All year. Uh, and an album you grew up with. And that uh, you probably yes. cop licks from that you learned off that you played along with. What is it like yes. to sit up there, go on stage and play that album with that band? Well, first of all, it's it's almost impossible because that album was never performed front to back, uh, except for the, you know, what Fish did it at the Garden. And I think Whittlefeet actually did it in the early aughts somewhere uh, one time I've heard about. But um, the Waiting for Columbus album has a lot of vocal and guitar overdubs on it, like a ton. So you're not really listening to very many live Will George or Paul Barrera vocals. But you can say that about most albums, live albums of that era, right? Of that era, yes. Yeah. I mean, Fillmore East, there isn't a single overdub hmm. on. So I'm just saying, like, Waiting for Columbus is an extremely ambitious and genius record. And that makes for a very uh challenging live experience but we have risen to the challenge night after night and it's the hardest thing for me has been like you know i i would never the vocal pacing of it you know um starting every night with all that you dream is like a nightmare for a singer night after night you can do it you know for one night but then the next night you would change the set so it's later in the set or you'd skip it but when you play Waiting for Columbus every night and you're doing one-nighters where you're sleeping in a bus most of the night, you know, and and then you're in all these different environments and you're doing night after night after night, you're playing six shows a week and you know you got to start every show with all that you dream. Yeah, it fucking sucks sometimes. But do you get to enjoy but, it? Of course. Once you're out there doing it, it's like the greatest thing ever. But... You know, I, I do a lot to stay in shape on the road and b both for my voice and my body. And, 
you just approach it like an athlete, you know, uh, doing that album every night. And I think we've been kicking ass. I've, I've been loving every second of it, even when it's been ridiculously challenging, it's been very, very, very rewarding. And I've, I've learned so much by having to do that album every night, to be honest with you, it's been a huge learning experience for me. And we just last weekend, uh, we got to play in Chicago and do a one-off and they let us play whatever we want. And the band was like a caged animal. It was unbelievable. It was an amazing show. It was like the best show we've played in a year. Wow. Yeah. Cause we could play anything we wanted. So we played all this stuff from all throughout the band's career and mixed it up. And everybody was just, everybody's chops are just way up from having to do the waiting for Columbus album. It is very challenging. Scott, um, I should wrap this up. I just want to finish with one final question. When you look back at this amazing journey, what, what do you think? Like from that, you know, teenage kid recording his own albums or recreating albums to to the guy who actually recorded the first couple albums, recording most of the stuff on, on your own to where you are today. How do you look at that journey? Well, I mean, it's... Again, it kind of comes back to that that axis of uh, preparation and timing. Um, I'm just somebody who went through life and their prep, preparation and timing lined up just the right way a couple times uh, in their career. Um, the thing I'm most proud of in my life is my family, my kids, and my marriage. Um, that's what I was looking for when I was a child playing music. I was looking for them. And I was using uh, music as a kind of, uh, as a form of practice and religion to, to find my way to clarity. And, you know, that's, that's the thing is you can, you can keep up that practice and you can revisit it. But, but really the achievement that I've, have found is uh, the family that I have. I think that's what I was always searching for. And in a way, not even in a way, in, in, in actuality, music is what brought me to them. I mean, the first time I met my wife, you know, she was 20 years old and couldn't get in a bar in New York. And one of her friends asked me to go let her in the back door at a bar I was playing at. You know, I mean, how many people does that happen to anymore even now with people dating on apps and shit? I was very lucky to have this kind of organic existence come together. And uh, I paid my dues like a motherfucker, man. Um, you know, I, I, I didn't come from any, any kind of security or, you know, um, any kind of grounding. You know, I had to always had to create my own grounding. And uh, I think, I think I'm very fortunate that I've been rewarded for it. And I'm also fortunate that I have a personality that can latch on to what's important because I have plenty of colleagues and friends who um, have lost themselves in this business completely. And success can actually breed an even higher level of dysfunction than failure in this business. And I've managed to avoid that, which might be my greatest achievement after having my family is, is not imploding trying to have all this success. Because this, you know, the, a musician, you know, uh, uh, the easiest part of the day is two hours. And then there's 22 other hours when you're on the road. And those 22 hours, they will fucking kill you. They will literally kill you if you don't know how to manage them. And uh, I do, thank God. So I, I'm very, I feel very fortunate about that. And um, I feel fortunate that I have lived to understand the balance of it all. In the end, it is just music. You know? But what a powerful thing. I mean, it's the most, it's the most important way we have to communicate our, our inner emotions and it's one of the most powerful ways for us to tell our stories. Um, and that's, that's why it's my passion in life. And I'm lucky to have my career and my passion be the same thing. Um, but I try, I try not to get, I try not to get too pie in the sky about it because um, one thing I have realized playing with so many of my heroes is that whether you're a fan or you're a musician, we're all from one tribe. 
the people who really get the music of Little Feet or the music of the Allman Brothers band. They're they're a special tribe. I mean, those bands are, you know, the Grateful Dead and the Beatles, okay, they're like everybody's bands, right? But, you know, there's this other class of bands. I'll also add to that list the band, right? So the band, NRBQ, Los Lobos, Little Feet, the Allman Brothers, that's my fucking people. Those are my people. Everyone I've met from those bands, all the music I've heard, it's immediate. It's like we, I am, I am in a family with the fans of those bands and the bands themselves. They just, they're just a community that's, that's been so important to me. And that's, that's really um, one of the most positive things you can get out of this is, is understanding that, that ecosystem, uh, how it works, respecting it, contributing to it, however you can. It's, it's a great thing, man. It's, it's, you know, it's the greatest thing about, to me, the greatest thing about being an American is the music. Well said. Scott, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, man. It was a great conversation. <laughs>